Well, good morning, friends. My name is Paul Kepis. I'm one of the elders here at Northbrook, and on behalf of the Council of Elders, please let me extend a warm welcome to each of you, and thank you for coming out on this rather cool fall-like morning. Is it too early to get excited yet? Preseason football is underway. The Bears, falling temperatures. I was actually driving in this morning, and I was thinking about a pumpkin-spiced latte and a strange desire to make soup. I don't know what that was about. In the meantime, it's my privilege to bring you the message today for our summer series, It's Complicated, Living with Integrity in a Messy World. I'm excited to share with you what God has put on my heart If you have a phone with you, we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 12 today. I suppose a Bible still works in a pinch. You know, before we had books, they would read God's word on scrolls, and here we are 4,000 years later, kind of scrolling again, right? We're going to be talking about using the gifts God gives us to live with purpose, And so thank you in advance for giving me a hearing, and I hope this message is both challenging and encouraging to you. But before we dig in, let's first go back to the ancient city of Corinth, because whenever we read scripture, and in particular Paul's letters, it's always helpful to first understand the, the, the circumstances of who the author is writing to. Context is key to exegesis, the the interpretation of Scripture, and it deepens the understanding of the text. This especially hit home for me last month, where Monica and I had the opportunity to sail the Aegean Sea and retrace some of the footsteps of Paul's missionary travels. It was the trip of a lifetime. And I'd like to begin by showing you all 300 pictures of our trip. (laughs) But maybe we only have time for a few. Seeing some of these places firsthand will forever change the way that I read Scripture. Let's look at the first pick. Here we are pulling into the early morning hours of Kavala. In uh, Acts 16, Paul refers to this city as Neapolis. Just eight miles inland from this town is the ancient city of Philippi. Philippi was growing quickly. It was a a city named after King Philip, Alexander the Great's father. And as that city grew, this tiny port continued to grow and became a city in itself. Neo meaning new, polis city, new city. So here's me and my honey in the city of Philippi. This is to whom Paul was writing in the book of Philippians. Also, in Acts 16, we see Paul, he meets Lydia, that encounter by the well, and he converts her, and they have that time. And then he and his buddy Silas, I guess they get in trouble, they get tossed in prison, right? And then there's this earthquake, and everything comes tumbling down, and then they're freed, but then they don't leave, they just stand there, and the jailer, he's blown away that they're not leaving, and so he becomes converted, don't you just love the richness of Bible stories? All right, next picture. Here we are uh, in the city of Ephesus. We're at a hospital there. They still use that staff and snake today to denote medical care. This is hilarious. We walked around all these ancient ruins, and you know, it just kind of makes you quiet. 
you just you, you see these deep and these mystical remnants and writings and we kind of forget that they're also ordinary people just like we are. There was one writing in particular at this hospital that our guide interpreted for us. I was expecting some profound insights of wisdom, of ancient medicine. Greek letters, they look so cool and so smart. But here's instead what it said. A man with a humpback came to see me. I laid him on the floor and I placed very heavy rocks on his back. He died, but his back was straight as an arrow. All right, last pick. I've got a talk to give. Uh, Here we are at the tiny island of Patmos. That's our ship anchored offshore there. The port wasn't big enough for us. We had to tender in. This is the island where John was exiled to. And this picture was taken right outside the cave where it is believed that John wrote the book of Revelation. We weren't allowed to take pictures in there, but I was allowed to go in and, and, I, and I touched some of the very walls that John may have touched. Powerful stuff. Just completely changes the way we look at the Bible. And as our luck would have it, we had to leave two days early and we missed the Corinth extension. Corinth was one of the biggest cities in the ancient world, politically and economically. And the main reason for this rise to great commercial power was because of its geographical position of an isthmus. We've actually got a map here of ancient uh, Greece. There we go. You can see some of the cities that are now books of the Bible. But you see Corinth down there, and you see that little sliver of land that holds it together to the rest of Europe. That strip was about four miles wide. It had thriving ports on either side of it. The city eventually learned that they could cut shipping routes down by hauling goods across it instead of around it. So instead of that treacherous 435-mile journey around the Peloponnese Peninsula, they built these massive stone ramps and this limestone trackway that connected the two seas. This was called a dialkos. Ship owners and merchants would arrive at one port, their goods would be unloaded and transported across, and then massive numbers of slaves would drag the ships up the ramp with these giant ropes and across the isthmus to the other side. They didn't even bother unloading smaller ships. They just dragged them across, fully loaded. A couple thousand years later, in 1882, they finally had enough technology and means to cut a canal in that isthmus. There's actually a picture of that right now, too. Uh, This has nothing to do with my talk, by the way, but look how cool that is. Actually, you think they could make it a little wider? I don't know. I just kind of get sweaty when I look at it. All of this paints the picture that Corinth was a very busy, very important, and very powerful force in the region. And all of that commerce and trade also made it a very corrupt and immoral place as well. And there was another reason for their immorality. Because at the very top of the city in what's called the Acropolis, Akron meaning summit and polis again meaning city, there stood the temple of Aphrodite the goddess of sexual love and beauty, and they loved worshiping her. If Corinth was the Amsterdam of the ancient world, then this temple was the red light district of its day. There were over a thousand priestess prostitutes that were very eager to work around the clock to raise funds for their deity. 
So this all sets the scene for how desperately the gospel was needed there. And so Corinth became very important to Paul. He first visits there in 50 AD uh, in his second of four missionary journeys. He spends a year and a half planning the church there before he moves on to other places in Europe and Asia. Corinth is where he would write the great book of Romans as well as 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Several years pass and Paul hears about problems back in Corinth. Things like power struggle, division, pride, and sexual immorality. But he's away now and busy at work in the mega city of Ephesus, 250 miles away. And he can't easily get back. So he responds with letters. And he writes 1 Corinthians around 55 AD. And just a few short months later, he writes 2 Corinthians. So let us read now from 1 Corinthians, verses 4 through 11. I'm reading from the ESV version. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for just having the opportunity to come together like this, for Northbrook Church, Lord, to come together and just to learn more about you. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to guess and do this on our own. You are not an abstract, distant God, but you give us a book that we get to read and the privilege of a country to read it in. I just pray for this time now, Lord, when may your presence be here and felt within us. I pray, Lord, that anything that is of me today will just be pushed aside and quickly forgotten. I pray, though, that, Lord, anything that is true, anything that is of you, those things would remain in our hearts. So open our minds now. Stir in our hearts, Lord, for what you would have in store. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth. And by church, I don't mean a facility like this one. I mean the body of Christ, the body of believers. That we have each been given a variety of gifts from the Holy Spirit, and we are to use them for what Paul calls the common good. He lists nine of them in this passage. And before I get into my message, I just want to take a sidebar out. I want to talk for one of them in particular, the gift of speaking in tongues. It's just a topic that many people kind of wrestle with. What is the gift of speaking in tongues, and and how are we supposed to think about it today? Well, the short answer is that it depends on interpretation of Scripture, which is mostly found in Acts and Corinthians. But let's just look a little more closely We just read that it's a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to us, so that's clear. But then in 1 Corinthians 13.8, Paul talks about the gift of tongues ceasing. But he refers to that ceasing in 13.8 as the arrival of, quote, the perfect. And that's debated about whether that has happened yet. So there's a lot of theology here, and there's a lot that could be said, too. 
but it largely follows along the lines of denominational doctrine. Supernatural gifting like speaking in tongues and other gifts that Paul mentioned in those passages like divine healing. They're largely predominant in the Pentecostal church today such as Assemblies of God and in in the charismatic church as well. There's a fancy theological word for this term. It's called continuationism. That the supernatural gifts given to the early church, they continue on today. And other denominations will hold the view that supernatural gifts were powers bestowed in the first ages to help unbelievers at that time. Fancy word for that view is cessationism. cessationism, That supernatural gifting has ceased and is no longer seen today. It's unfortunate that sometimes this is a divisive issue for the church. And so perhaps the most important thing I can say is that these are not, this is not a creedal issue. This is not one of the non-negotiable tenets of Christianity. That regardless of where our beliefs fall on this issue, that we can come together as one body of Christ and that we could have room for our fellow brothers and sisters just to have grace for our doctrinal differences. But one thing that is certain is that Paul lavish, that God lavishes on us with many kinds of gifts. But what if I don't have many kinds of gifts? Or what if I don't know what my gifts are? May I suggest that the more quiet time we spend with the Lord on this, the more we realize how much he lavishes on each of us with almost uncountable gifts. We see this throughout Scripture. Romans 12, 6 through 8, for one example. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Serving is a gift. Leading your family or at your place of work is a gift. Even being generous or or just showing mercy to another is a gift. How many dozens more could we name right now? What about joy? Are we ever in a good mood? What about the gift of encouragement? What about gratitude? There's a big one. Love to give a whole message on that one day. And what about the greatest gift of all, the gift of love? Next week, Mike will be unpacking 1 Corinthians 13, and he's going to be talking a lot more about that. And so Paul is encouraging the believers of Corinth with the reminder that God gives us gifts to share the love of Christ with others. Because Corinth needed a lot of help. Let's recap. They weren't thinking much about Jesus. It was a place of self-indulgence, financial abundance, sexual promiscuity, selfishness, and division. Let me ask you a sobering question. Does that at all sound familiar? Are we in many ways not like the ancient city of Corinth? Because more and more people are turning away and living a life apart from God. We can even look to extra-biblical writings to see this. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln, he wrote a proclamation of prayer and fasting. 
written over 150 years ago. Listen to how accurate his words still are today. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation on earth has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. Isn't it awesome how relevant and applicable the Bible is? Even after thousands of years, it's the same story from the beginning of creation. Remember what the serpent, the question he asked Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Do we really have to follow God or can we really just do it on our own and be our own God? Please hear me. This struggle is imprinted on your heart and mine. My natural impulse is to be selfish. And if I'm not pushing against that daily, we're going to feel a lot of frustration and despair in this world. I love something D.A. Carson says. He's a theologian and scholar. It's one of my favorite quotes. I think of it often. He says, People do not drift toward holiness. Maddie Kahn did a really great job talking about this a few weeks ago, about the need to be intentional in our walk with the Lord. If you haven't heard his message yet, please find time to do so. You can just go to our website and click on that media tab there on the top. We've got to be intentional because the DNA of sin is selfishness. It's living for our own wants and desires. And this is why God's gifts are so important because putting them to use is how we get out of ourselves and into living for God. And I'll be unpacking that more in just a minute, but I first want to ask this question. Why is the God part so important? Why does it have to be God's gifts? Why can't we just be gifted And that's that. Because there's no such thing as a gift without a giver. Jesus makes this clear in John 15, 4 through 6. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing. That's pretty bold. We can do nothing? Aristotle once said that nothing is what rocks dream about. No thing. So we can do nothing good without God? Well, of course, an an atheist can walk an old lady across the street. There's actually a lot of atheists that are doing a lot of really good things in this world. 
But please put your thinking caps on. He can never have an objective moral reason for doing so. He could do it if he wants to, but he could never do it because he ought to. Because ought cannot come from a blind, uncaused, random universe. And that's why the question, is there a God, is the most important question we could ever ask because it has more ramifications for how we live our lives than any other question we can never ask. Because if there's a God, then there's also a purpose and a plan for your life. It means that you and I are here for a reason. You might be in this room right now for a reason. God would mean that the universe is infused with meaning and there are moral laws that show us and tell us that there are a way things are supposed to be. That there's a way that that you and I are supposed to live. Life itself would have intrinsic value. Let's contrast that. If there's no God, then meaning and purpose can only come from what we decide for ourselves. This is the worldview of humanism where man becomes the measure of all things. The value of life would then depend on whatever society and government decide is best. Rights would not come from God, but from the state. No God would mean that there's also not a way that things are supposed to be, rather than what we decide works the best. And check this out. Moral laws would then be reduced to opinion. It would be an opinion that murder is wrong. There is no logical way to argue otherwise. And as the famed Russian philosopher Fyodor Dostoevsky said, everything becomes permissible. And we're kind of seeing that today, right? Listen to the excerpt from, uh, from journalist and poet Steve Turner in his poem titled Creed. Listen to the sarcastic way that he portrays this worldview without a God. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing. Because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians will be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions is the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth excepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. 
We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. And then he goes on and he writes this postscript. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, white skull looting, bomb blasts school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. Friends, without God, our feet are firmly planted in midair. Everyone then does what is right in their own eyes, to the best of their knowledge, no transcendent anchor for right or wrong. And so all of this is to say that Paul is keenly aware when he writes to Corinth the need for God. He knows that the only hope for the city and for the deliverance of mankind is ultimately in a relationship with him. And he knows we aren't supposed to do it alone. He writes on in verses 12 through 14, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many And he goes on and finishes in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul is reminding us here that our walk with God is a community project. We see this from the beginning of Scripture where God says it's not good for man to be alone. We were created by our Creator to be in unity. We all have a role to play. We all matter. How cool is that? We see that commitment here at Northbrook too. A commitment to help equip the next generation. We believe that families matter, that generations need each other, that we all have a role to play. We all have something to contribute. We all have stories and views and experiences Experiences unique to anyone else on the planet. And helpers can sometimes come in the most unexpected places, too. I remember some years ago now, uh, my oldest daughter, Anna, was about eight years old, and I had come home from a tough day at work, and I came in, and she's like, how was work, Dad? And I'm like, yeah, it was fine. She's like, you don't look fine. I'm like, <laughs> kind of on autopilot, you know, and I just sort of stopped and and said, you know, honey, it actually was a bad day. Um, Not a great day. She turned around. She walked over to a chair. She turned and sat in the chair and said, let's talk about it. (laughs) I'm like, okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, Well, so I had this, I was in this meeting, and, you know, I was was trying to get this point across, and I just felt like I wasn't being heard. You know, I was trying to say something, and I just, it's like they weren't listening or something. It was just really, it's really frustrating. And she was just kind of staring at me deadpan the whole time, taking it all in and kind of nodding a little. She let me finish, and when I finished, she kind of looked down. Then she kind of looked up at me and said, You know, Dad, what you just said there was one bad thing. You still have a thousand good things to be happy about. And I went and gave her a hug. You know, I mean, she, she validated my struggle. She encouraged me with a bigger perspective. God doesn't waste anything. 
And he puts all kinds of people in our lives to help us be the people that he wants us to be, to do the work that he has called us to do. Don't miss this. Using the gifts that God has entrusted to us is the greatest act of obedience and faithfulness that we can have in him. It's how we can love him back. So please let me bring this all together. What does this practically look like in our day-to-day lives? Earlier this summer, I lavished on my wife with a night on the town. I spared no expense. I took her to Big Boy for hamburgers. (laughs) Pretty good. And there was this couple, this older couple next to us. You could see they just weren't living in financial abundance. And my heart was stirred. Monica was in the bathroom and the waitress came over and I just paid for their meal. And, And we got up and we left before they could thank us. And I just wanted to return to God some of the love and goodness that he gives to me. I also wanted to use it in a sermon someday so I could sound really great. I didn't do that. That's kidding. Here's the thing. Love can never exist without doing. It is impossible to love without doing. Friends, you and I can make a difference in this world. Hallelujah. Every decision we make, big and small, matters. It's been said that there are five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and yours. And most people don't read the first four. It's not about taking time out of our lives and then doing something for God and then jumping back into our lives. That would mean that it's our show. That our lives belong to us and sometimes we give some of it to God. But it's much bigger than that. It's much better than that. The Bible says that you and I were bought with a price. So what would it look like if we turned it completely upside down? What if it was his show and we have the privilege of using the gifts that he gives us to play a part For me, this became self-indicting some years ago. God took me out of a very comfortable place. I was at the top of my secular success at my trading company. It was 2014. I was feeling good about all I was accomplishing. But there was a rock in my shoe that just wasn't going away. And I kept sensing from the Lord this question, that's a really nice trading company you got there. What else you got? although I'm sure God was using correct grammar at the time. That set me off on a sobering journey of reordering my life. I literally made a list of all the things that I was and who I was called to be in order of importance. My faith, I'm a child loved by God. My marriage, I'm a husband to Monica. My family, I'm a dad to three amazing kids my friendships, my work, and on and on. And being honest with you always, there was pride in that list. It was a good list. It had said all the right things. Then I heard God nudging me again saying, 
That's a really great list you've made there. Now go back and make another list of all the hours and effort that you put into the things that you say are important. Oh, social media wasn't even on my list. Nor was staring at all those news apps or checking my stock portfolio. And I had gotten really good at spending long hours in the office, really good at justifying all of that. How noble and sacrificial of me to make this money for my family like that, to spend so many hours away from my home like that. For me, this journey led to my resignation. I retired at 48. I quit. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what that meant. I only knew two things. I knew that my next journey and season were going to be faith and family, even though I didn't know what that meant. A lot of unknowns, a lot of unfamiliar. I went from pouring everything I had into a trading empire to pouring Rice Krispies for my youngest daughter, Grace. I never knew someone could eat so many bowls. I'm not saying that resigning from work is a good idea. Work is a rightful and noble pursuit for many. I only mean to say that it was my journey of obedience. For each of you, it'll mean something else. Maybe it's not something big. Maybe there are smaller changes that God has for your life. Regardless, make good choices because your fruit matters. Do you know what they call an apple tree that has lemons growing on it? There's actually a word for it. It's called a lemon tree. (laughs) It's not like I'm over here and this is me and then I'm over, this is the stuff that I do and say. It's all one. You will know them by their fruits, the Bible says. We can say what we feel, but we're going to live what we believe. And I'm not just talking about mission trips and ministry and all the big stuff that sounds really great on Facebook. It's often the little things that God cares most about. Like how we treated our spouse today before church. How our patience has been at home or at work. Kids, how well are you respecting and honoring your parents? You won't know until you have kids of your own how much they love you. We can use the gifts that God has given us for the good. And sometimes the greatest act of service we could ever do is to simply love well. There were 613 Mosaic laws. They were reduced to the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? And we remember what he said. Love God and love people. Please hear this. The greatest ministry opportunity you and I will ever have is our family. I lost my brother Ted about three years ago after being diagnosed with cancer 11 months before. He was 16 months older than me. I prayed and prayed and prayed and I would have given everything I had for a magic wand. But there wasn't one coming. It wasn't my call to make. So what could I do? I 
to be his brother. I journeyed with him those 11 months right alongside, and in those final weeks, I didn't leave his side. We held hands. And I sang him some songs. I helped him eat. I showed him God's love because that's what I could do. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You are valuable to God. Ask him what he thinks of you. Stop asking the world around you. Mother Teresa said that the good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. God deserves our best. If you're here today and you're tired of living for yourself, if you want purpose and meaning in your life, but you don't know Jesus, or maybe you've strayed away from him, would you consider putting your trust in him? When he says, follow me, we can trust him because he's trustworthy. He's our one constant when nothing else in this world can ever be. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you about it. God loves us more than we will ever know. More than we will ever deserve. God, I just thank you right now for this day and this time. Lord, I'm not even sure what I'm praying, but I just, we just are so grateful that you are a God who is good to us, that you love us so much, that you lavish on us with gifts. You don't leave us alone in this world to navigate, but you entrust us with gifts to help equip us to do good, but also to preserve us in times of struggle. And God, that you give us relationships that we're not here alone family and friendships, Lord. We're just so grateful that you're a God that loves us that much. And Lord, I just pray for everyone here right now. Would you stir in their hearts, Lord? Would you renew your love for them and remind them of that? And Lord, I just pray for this church and for this body of Christ here, Lord. I just pray that good things would continue to come, that it might truly be said that the best years of Northbrook are ahead of us. And in a world that is losing so much, so confused, just pray that we might be a beacon of light. Others might come to know you. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.